0: care provision needs to be improved across the world to reduce the impacts of snake bite
1: the stage is set for damaging human snake conflict
0: hello and welcome to episode 56 of herpetological highlights podcast featuring yours truly tom major and ben marshall and in this 56th episode we are doing a bit about snake bites don't know why I said that in such an optimistic way. It is quite a morbid topic.
1: Well, I think I think that's it. You've got to talk about it in an optimistic way to counteract the grim subject
0: matter, right? Yeah, I think you're right to an extent. but um, You also don't want to be, like, flippant. Yeah, that's the thing. There's certain things I'm going to say in this podcast, which I say, if I say them in an optimistic way, I'm going to come across like some kind of sociopath. So, like, tempering the enthusiasm, but also remaining enthusiastic, because otherwise it will be not very fun or interesting yeah but yeah like you're totally right it is a morbid subject and um yeah it is something we should be taking very seriously and thankfully as we'll discuss i think it is something which as a collective the human race is now beginning to take a little bit more seriously we're gonna have a think about a snake bite on a kind of global scale and then we're gonna laser focus in on human snake conflict in one particular small area of one country and then finally, we're going to have a new species of the bi-week, as per usual.
1: Yeah, I think the I think the sort of game plan is to stay somewhat away from the human dimension and the human dimension of snake bite, just because that's well outside of our realm of knowledge and comfort. And yeah, comfort. And so we're more looking at the ecology side of snakes and how that plays into the snake bite uh, problem issue. Uh, epidemic or your you know preferred choice
0: of term yeah absolutely so i think with that it's probably a good time i think before
1: that you need to mention it's a uh, sammy assad's suggested episode right here yes
0: so the big man himself sammy assad thank you very much mate for being our patron and this episode is for you if you want to have an episode of your choosing, you can also become our patron, uh, patreon.com slash highlights. And uh, yeah, thanks very much, Sammy. And we hope that this episode goes some way to satisfy that burning itch that you have to learn, not a physical burning itch, I hope, but a burning itch to learn about venomous snakes and them biting.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a very odd way of... Uh... Phrasing the whole snake bite thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I yeah. It's it's, it's uh, yeah. I think it's fine. It's not wrong. Yeah, uh,
0: I think it's fine. So, yeah, that's it. Um, paper one? Paper one. So, Paper one is by Longbottom, Shearer, Divine, Alcoba, Chapuis, Weiss, Ray, Worrell, Ray again, Castanada and Williams, 2018. Vulnerability to snake bite. Wait, there's, you've missed some notes. There's names. more, isn't there? Go on. I've only got that many. There's Hay and Piggott. Thank you. As well. Thank you. Sorry, Hay and Piggott. Nearly missed you out. Uh, vulnerability to snake bite envenoming a global mapping of hotspots, published in The Lancet, which
1: uh, is a mysterious journal that nobody really understands. Yeah, all right. And by nobody, I mean just us. Yeah,
0: so it's one that like we, I, I didn't even know about, but apparently it's like one of the most famous and long running medical journals and widely regarded as great everyone's like wow what
1: do they what do they actually like pen themselves as general medical journal
0: okay okay
1: so that's that's this is this is why we only see snakebite stuff in it because everything else is well too far outside of our realm that's like in in my mind the lancet is literally just a journal about snakebite
0: yeah and then i recently found out it was a. an interesting fish that holds secrets about the evolution of vertebrates in general because it's like a really simple chordate that looks like a little tube and lives in shallow seas where does it where does it keep the secrets it keeps the secrets um when it's in the shallow sea they generally live on sandy banks like they'll poke half out of the sand and like eat things that pass by and so the secrets are in the sand right underneath the tail there the last place I'd look yeah exactly I mean you wouldn't want to look there so yeah we're talking about snake bites now there's a lot of uncertainty around exact estimates for how many people get bitten and how many people die from snake bite because by its very nature and the reason we're talking about it is because it is underreported There is an estimated... Neglected. You could even say neglected, yes. There's an estimated 421,000 to 1.2 million envenomings per year globally. And that translates into between 81,000 and 138,000 people actually dying as a result of snake bite. Um, That's our kind of best estimate. Uh, And as you said, it's a neglected tropical disease which is a disease recognized by the World Health Organization as in need of attention, but having not usually received it in a kind of uh, dramatic enough way. And the reason for that is because these are diseases, as you can tell, neglected tropical disease. They're diseases which affect the poorest people in the world. And so um, there's a kind of history and humanity of things which only affect poor areas receiving less attention and so yeah it's made its way onto this list of the World Health Organization's uh, neglected tropical diseases. It was a neglected tropical disease but then it was removed in 2013 so fast forward a couple of years from 2013 in 2015 there was a lot of alarm being raised by uh, medical professionals and that was because Sanofi Pasteur which is the Company which makes anti-venom stopped making something called Fav Afrique, which is an anti-venom which is very effective against the bites of Echis sore scaled vipers. And when they mm. announced they were going to be not making that anymore, well, actually, after they stopped making it, uh, it's believed that deaths in Africa were increasing quite dramatically in places like Nigeria, where sore scaled viper bites were being treated using Indian. Sore-scaled viper anti-venom. Yes. Lots more people were dying. Yeah. And this resulted in um Medicine Sans frontier and the Global Snake Bite Initiative and Health Action International, among others, doing a hell of a lot of uh, advocacy and lobbying. And eventually, back in June 2017, the World Health Organization re-recognised snake bite as a category A neglected tropical disease and um yeah it started again to get the attention it kind of deserves and this paper i'm not in... gone
1: yeah so i'm not entirely sure what the like who categorization actually does for things i suppose it might open the door for additional funding from governments and stuff or of or health organisations in general like i'm sure if it gets bumped up into a category then it opens the door for a greater diversity of grants and funding
0: yeah yeah so um i think that's pretty much exactly what it does and i think then yeah yeah you get it's more than just
1: just saying saying oh we should watch out for snake bite, it does have uh financial implications for people working in that area i would presume yeah
0: i'm not exactly sure like i'm the same as you um what the specifics are but i know that like once it receives this attention the world health organization like produce a load of roadmaps for objectives goals timeline phases and i imagine that when you've got that framework to build on, everyone else has something they can tap into and it just makes life a lot easier.
1: Yeah, and probably better coordinated as well. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I think their main goal is to reduce snake bite deaths and disability by fifty percent by twenty thirty. That's kinda of like their big overarching theme, which mm. which, you know, I would like to think is a doable, attainable ta- attainable task. But um yeah, so that's kind of like a brief history of the snake bite envenoming as a uh, neglected tropical disease. And so that kind of um, opens the... F- what am I gonna say? What, how is that sentence going to S- end? So it, <laughs> it, I, I
1: don't even know how it started, but the point is it sets the stage for this paper to try and identify, okay, there's this crisis, where's this crisis most severe, and where do we need to be targeting efforts to essentially get the bang for your buck okay, these are the places that are really in need. We need something that can work in these areas. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Prioritisation. That's the exact intention of this paper. And so by way of doing that, they're looking for combinations of dangerously venomous snakes and places with um, low-quality local health care or health care which is difficult to access and absence of possible therapy, so snakes which don't have antivenom, and these kind
1: yeah they do they they split the healthcare thing up though it's it's there's poor quality healthcare and there's low access yes yeah because it's no use having fantastic healthcare but people can't get to it or can't afford it
0: yes of course and as you say accessibility of healthcare it is a really important factor. Um, there was a Nigerian study by Habib and Abu Bakr in 2011, and they found that for every hour a snake bite victim waits for medical assistance, for example, if they're traveling, uh, their chances of death go up by 1%. And, um, yeah, obviously serious medical complications other than death also increase as time passes without intervention, so... Yeah, if you've been—I mean, if you've been bitten by a viper, for example, in, on your hand, and you you wait a long time to go and get treatment, then um, the effects that's going to have on your your blood and your clotting systems are going to get worse mm. over time.
1: And depending on the snake, your base chances of survival are already—you know—that that can vary quite dramatically to begin with, right? Yeah, for sure. So one percent for one snake is probably—you know—could be less of a deal. One per snake for a specifically super deadly venomous one.
0: That's not a one percent you want. No, playing against you. No, absolutely not. In the paper, they they list two hundred and seventy eight snakes which are considered to be dangerously venomous, um, and in the World Health Organization's in the World Health Organization's um, anti-venoms database, there are anti-venoms either monospecific or polyvalent for one hundred and fifty nine of those two hundred and seventy eight snake species. So there's quite a few species for which there really isn't an effective treatment, and um, Yeah, I mentioned there monospecific or polyvalent. Uh, Monospecific is when the antivenom is specifically made to target the venom of one species. Polyvalent is where it's kind of a capsule. It will have different active ingredients and it will be able to neutralize different venoms rather than just a single one.
1: Yeah. I also wonder how many... So we've got 278 snakes in the WHO database, right? Yes. That's...
0: Yeah. That is the number.
1: How comprehensive is that in terms of venomous snakes? That's is that most venomous snakes? I mean I'm sure it's the big The big ones uh-huh. I wonder where their sort of threshold for cutoff is. Because like would a I'd presume something like Raptophus subminiatus is on that list. But would these sort of mildly venomous ones that ordinary... like would a hog nose be on there?
0: Uh, what is in the Western hognose? Yeah. Nah, I wouldn't imagine so, because you wouldn't get a serious complication. It would be a waste. I would imagine it's like, I, I, I'm trying to find out. I'm trying to do a little bit of finding out here as we speak, but I don't know what their sort of cutoff is. Criteria. Yeah, like yeah. What, how bad how bad does it have to be?
1: Yeah, because like the hognose example is a is a odd one. Because yes, okay, it's not going to do serious harm, but there is that allergic reaction aspect which is known to cause complications and things, and so like Raphdophis subminiatus and Raphdophis, was it Tigrinus, were you know widely available at one point before before people really understood how dangerous their venom could be. Yeah, I mean it's, I think there's only ever been a handful of deaths by their venom, but they they have the potential there.
0: Yeah, I would imagine they're on it, for the simple reason that there's a well-documented case of a death. Yes. But, yeah, I don't know. Because this isn't... The intentions of this list aren't just to show snakes which can kill you. They are also to warn you about snakes which can maim, which is obviously a big issue. Um, Right. Lots of people get bitten and end up...
1: maim via venom.
0: Mame via venom, yeah. I don't know. Um, And I can't find it on Google... Um, I'm downloading their supplementary material but it's massive and I suspect it's going to um, not help.
1: It's going to have all the apps and stuff in it,
0: yeah. Oh, here we go Venomous Snakes and Anti-Venoms Database Hmm. Okay, okay, okay Here we go, mate So, um, there's two categories, okay, so I've got the list here
1: Yeah, category one and category two, right? Yeah. Whereas one's widespread, commonly bite deadly venom Category two, essentially all the same apart from less is known, and they're not as frequently implicated in uh, snake bites in general.
0: Yeah. Either because they're not in places where people are or they're super sneaky and they don't bite anyone.
1: Yeah. But yeah, there's not actually a list I'm looking at a list currently for Southeast Asia. There's not a full list to conceal at the same time. Huh, that's weird. At present in Southeast Asia subregion. No King Cobra on this list. Oh no, there it is. My bad. But no um, Raphdophis that I saw. Yeah, I'm looking All know. these are extremely, like, really, really venomous. We're talking Russell's vipers and other... Well... Lots of vipers. We've got some coral snakes, crates.
0: Yeah, Could, teletrops, macrops are on there as a uh, Category 2. Mm. I mean, that's not yeah, so, particularly extreme venom.
1: No, but it's it's much more than a Raphdophis or something yeah, like that. it's definitely... It's, it's going to... Like one bite and you could be losing a hand or something, yeah. Parts of you,
0: yeah. No, you're right though. I can't see a um rabdophis on there at all. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. So it seems to be quite a stringent. Like these are really gonna do you some harm, snakes. Yeah. As opposed to snakes that have venom. So it is quite a targeted list, it seems.
0: Yeah, that's actually really cool. I mean, that's like. That really, summar- that, I mean, that gives me a lot of understanding about their criteria, just in the fact that they've left that snake off. Because I'm sure they would have been aware. But yeah, it's such an uncommon occurrence. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, you could probably get away with picking up those lots and lots of those snakes and nothing would happen. So, yeah. Until you get unlucky. Yeah, yeah. don't do it. But um, yeah, certainly. <laughs> yeah, these are actually like proper, proper venomous ones. Yeah.
1: Which makes a lot of sense because we're talking about an organization that's dealing with health and also a problem that requires a lot of resources. You're going to target the most uh, damaging snake venoms first and then work your way down.
0: Yes. Yeah. 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 Cool. Oh, I'm glad we found that list.
1: Yeah. Just looking at the states quickly and we got a lot of just rattlesnake after rattlesnake, some coral snakes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Essentially what you'd expect. Yeah. And then... Australia's got a whole host of small, chubby, deathy guys. Bitey boys. <laughs> yeah. And uh, a load of elapids, which are mm. either brown or really stunning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so there, there we go. go. There we go. So uh, we have worked that one out. They're on the list if they are genuinely Really hurting people, um, and category two just distinguishes that they are capable of messing you up, but it's unlikely they will because they either don't like people or we just don't come across them. I mean, all snakes don't like all people. that. They, all that there's missing data. All that there's missing data. Yes, all that's missing data. Yeah,
1: so potentially some category twos could be category ones. They just happen to occur, let's say, on a Indonesian island or something, mm. and are actually a really big problem there. But it's just not documented to the extent required to bump them up into category one sure because i think category one's basically hey we need to target these ones as a priority because if we dealt with a snake bite for i don't know russell's viper that would have a much bigger impact in terms of number of lives impacted than looking at a category two somewhere else
0: yeah that's true i mean you fight the fire that's that's the game plan. you fight the fire that's in front of you don't you mm. um so let me ask you ben have you ever heard of anti-venom, referred to as anti-venin?
1: Uh, I've only ever seen it written it down. I've never heard anybody really say it you've never heard as it, a term.
0: You've never heard it uttered by a living soul? Or dead. <laughs> I used to watch a TV show about a Snake Bite Doctor. And this is going back a lot of years, when I was a wee boy. And um, back in the day, I was always trying to watch the nature channels in the hopes of catching a glimpse of a snake. This is before you could just go on YouTube and watch videos of snakes for your entire <laughs> lifespan and to have still have videos of snakes to watch. <laughs> All day. Every day. Yeah. Um, so it was like, you know, I'd watched this program and it was called Venom ER. And I was just basically hoping to see a, a little snake. Unfortunately... Most of the snakes in this program were headless rattlesnakes in the hospital because the guy was dealing with snake bite victims. In a sack. Yeah, it was quite sad. But um, yeah, the guy was called Dr. Sean Bush. He's the doctor in it. Uh, I used to love this program. Anyway, he called it anti venin And I always thought it was weird because anti-venom is just much better to say. It seems more like a word. Um, but apparently the reason for this is that anti-venom was developed in France in the late 19th century. And the French word is anti-venin, and therefore that became accepted usage like worldwide as anti-venin spread out. Um, but because it is an antidote to venom, English speakers have kind of been slowly whittling away at it. And uh, now they're completely synonymous, but anti-venom is definitely the sort of common vernacular usage, I would say. So, yeah. In English, anyway. In English. I mean, in France, they're still calling it anti-venin, I'm sure. Which makes sense. And probably in other French-speaking countries. But there, there you go. That's the history of the word. Cool. I, know, I mean,
1: to be fair, I never knew that, and I never, for some reason, never looked it up. <laughs> I just, just was satisfied that they were probably perfect synonyms, and it seems that they are. So that's okay.
0: Hmm. I can handle that. That's good. At least now you know for certain. Hmm. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what they, how they actually accomplished this feat of. Uh, providing a global map of snake bite risk mm. well basically they have a big map showing all the different places which have venomous <laughs> snakes um a big map of snakes it's a big map well that's what they have it's just i mean it's the same size as any map of the earth it's large and uh basically they've got on they the, the, the sort of results of this paper appear as like a series of maps and what they were looking at was how many species of dangerously venomous snake are in each place and then whether or not that correlates with places which are also inaccessible for hospitals if they live far away from a conurbation with 50,000 people and whether or not the snakes in the area are dangerously venomous and lacking in anti-venom which um, is obviously a horrible cocktail
1: that's exactly it that's that's yeah they're, they're picking out those areas what's the term they used a nexus of ecological context and public health weaknesses that's what they're pulling out that's what you want where everything's culminating into yeah what you say a, de- a deadly cocktail of bad circumstances
0: yeah exactly I like that so we're word smithery in this paper using the word nexus um, but yeah so there was one drawback of their methodology which I kind of noticed and I think it's only fair to expect this, but um, when they're looking at which venomous snakes are in a place, they're only looking at the number of species. They're not looking at any kind of like snake density. And so you could have 1000 crates in a place and no king cobras in that same place. And it would appear worse than if you had a neighbouring square, which had one crate and one cobra that would appear as a 2 rather than a 1. So it would look as though your chances of being bitten by a snake were higher, where actually it could well be that it was dramatically less. So it's not necessarily mm. fair to say that this um, number of dangerously venomous snakes in a place is actually an accurate representation of your exact likelihood of getting bitten, but it's just the best proxy they could use. I do actually have something to say about that.
1: Yeah, it's there have been like efforts to use... Like identify a species niche by sort of where, where it's been spotted and then infer density or abundance of that species based on how well that niche... Okay, this species looks like it prefers this sort of niche by cl- uh, climate, elevation, whatever. And then you look at it across its whole range and sort of infill the gaps where you know the species should be because it's suitable, but you don't actually have records of and then sort of infer abundance based on how suitable an area is. Apart from it doesn't work. There's, there's been a sort of debate back and forth of people using it as a, as a proxy for stuff and then other people coming along and being like, here's some simulated data, which we know was derived from like a, a fake animal range. So you know how many individuals are in each location and basically showing that they didn't match up the models that were based on just sort of random points with locations and no abundance estimates couldn't replicate the actual abundance that those points were drawn from so i mean i it is still a debate whether it can be done and some methods certainly get closer to the truth than others um it is just a big leap to go from these sort of grand large scale you know, sort of regional or national scale uh climate weather elevation data to something that Basically tells you how many snakes are on the ground. I mean, you know, snakes are loaded around, the they're using loads of different microhabitats, that can have a bigger impact than just climactic suitability. I mean, think about green pits as a nice example. You have two different species or three different species living in the same location, but the niche separation, you know, some living in higher trees, some living in mid-story, some low, you know, lower to the ground, you won't see the same species. 200, 300 metres down the road, where the forest doesn't exist, but the understory still exists. So you can get one species, not another, but at a climactic level, they're all feasibly there. So there's no... There is this disconnect between abundance and broad-scale suitability, so it is difficult to do without having actual on-the-ground... Okay, let's work out how many snakes are in this specific location. So basically, they couldn't have done any better than what they did with just numbers of species. Not not easily. Certainly not with the data that exists. I mean, to be honest, their range maps being based on uh, sort of expert opinion and then five or so occurrence records is pretty... Um, you know, five five locations. Some, <sighs> I mean, depending on the snake, that could be okay fine it's a snake that ranges maybe 10 15 square kilometers or something when he's tiny endemics on a tiny island but then sort of five occurrence records for i don't know something that's sort of relatively widespread like uh malayan pit viper or something like that not crazy widespread not like continent wide but you know a few nations that's going to be a pretty mediocre range map i would presume absolutely the the analysis is there what we're lacking is the actual on-ground data for snakes especially snakes in tropical areas because it's like we were talking about before detectability is a massive issue but you look at studies that the the best one i can think of off the top of my head is this sea lion uh, study showing movement pathways of sea lions i think it's a wilson paper i think I'll, i'll track it down but basically, they are inferring, uh, quite on a small scale, uh, sea lion ranges, but they're incorporating like water depth, water the slope under the water, things like that, all the climatic stuff over the top. You know, you can just layer and layer all these sort of potential covariates up as long as they're available, and as long as you've got enough data on where these animals are or occur to actually make use of them. Okay, the flip side is you can run a model with anything. Um, Again, the best example I can think of is that is basically this paper that went, okay, we think people are basically producing spurious range maps because they're not paying close enough attention to the selection of covariates. So, okay, you can throw temperature in there, you can throw rainfall, you can throw seasonal variation, you can throw as many you know, variables as you want, but the model's only as good as what you're giving it. And their way of testing that was they basically uh, made fake climactic variables out of paintings, old, like, Renaissance paintings. They had this overlay of Europe which had all the normal climactic stuff and then they made these fake ones out of paintings and ran the models again with the completely dubious paintings as the covariates and got not dissimilar performing range maps but of course the model doesn't know that it's it's working on a you know a made-up painting layer or or a something that makes sense to the biology of the animal so what these models are missing is this mechanistic link between how a species lives basically how that interacts with the climate and it's skipping that and just going climate species is there, there's, there's no connection, so it's, it's very much up to the researcher to try and pick covariates that make sense for their species, and a lot of the time that's very difficult, like I'm saying with the, the vipers, sometimes you simply don't have the raster data that would uh, allow you to do that, because it's it's too fine scale, so it's, it's tricky, I mean these guys, these guys are trying something exceptionally hard, because the the lack of tropical snake data is appalling. Um, there's not much more they could have done. I think then bringing in the expert opinion maps and combining them with uh, occurrence data from citizen science is a fantastic idea, um, as opposed to just going for one or the other. I think combining them was very smart. And combining them with a little bit of like bioclimactic um, similarity, just to add some nuance to it really really like that it's just a shame that they were limited by the data that they have available to them
0: yeah that's literally it yeah so there's certainly some drawbacks but uh they've definitely done the best they can do with the data that's available
1: 100% 100% yeah i think well all this stuff is drawing drawing attention to missing data in the tropics and you know more work needs to be done mm-hmm. that's that's why it's a that's why it's a priority
0: Yeah, right on. Anyway, so we're looking at the map of where the most dangerous species are. There's some definite hotspots. West Africa, Eastern Australia, Northwest South America and Southeast Asia, particularly Indonesia, are definitely uh, areas which have a disproportionate amount of dangerously venomous snakes. However... And did you say Eastern Australia too? Yes. Okay. Yeah, sure I did. However, the place with the least effective treatments for the bites of these most dangerous snakes is definitely West Africa. Um, and also coastal regions of the upper half of South America they have got a serious lack mm. of effective treatments um, and actually despite having loads of dangerous species Southeast Asia is pretty well covered by anti-venom except for Borneo
1: and Australia as well yeah we've got something like maybe 13 12 like between 10 and 13 species judging by the map and yet when you look at the map that's okay number of snake species with no effective therapy, Australia looks like it's A-OK. And
0: I am I mean, that is... That and the fact that all American venomous snakes have anti-venoms really just speaks to the whole... Bar maybe one? Oh, right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Which I guess is possibly one of the coral snakes? That would be my guess. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like rattlesnakes they would have covered, but I'm not sure. But that really... That disparity between venomous snakes and there being or not being effective anti-venoms available. Australia, um, sort of what you what we would have called in geography, an MEDC, more economically developed country, they've got anti-venoms for everything, whereas over the pond, in you only have to go to really poor places like the coastal regions of South America and West Africa, and the situation is completely different. And that really does speak volumes mm. to the whole ethos behind the World Health Organization making this a neglected tropical disease it's just it's worse for poor people and that's why that's why all this that's why we're talking about this and so yeah borneo is an interesting case and i think you mentioned to me the reason why it might be that borneo is actually missing a few yeah
1: yeah i mean i suspect mainly because the rest of southeast asia isn't as bad you've got sort of A sort of not too great spot with Myanmar and then the other side of Thailand, Laos, Cambodia and Indonesia. You've got another sort of bad spot with limited uh, or or a higher number of species without effective therapies. And I was wondering whether that's maybe a couple of endemic or semi-endemic crates or something along those lines. Something that's diversified relatively well, have very potent venoms anyway. And perhaps, well... Yeah, island nation, you know, that's what I was thinking was just Borneo has some endemics which haven't had effective therapies developed for them, partly because they are endemics. I wonder whether other sort of anti-venoms would work on them. So maybe they don't have specific uh, treatments, but whether there's some sort of scope for a polyvalent one there, I don't know. Mm. My money would be on the endonism. Yeah.
0: Causing issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, Myanmar and Bangladesh, they also deserve a special mention because they each have three Category 1 snakes that have no treatment options. So, yeah, they're in a bit of a pickle in terms of actually... Do you have a list of what what those three are? I don't. uh, They didn't explicitly say in the paper. Uh, Let's see. Bangladesh has... I mean, they've got lots of Category 1. Yeah, this
1: is the thing. They've got a a lot of snakes. Mm. I mean, it
0: could be the Indian crate... It could be the greater black crate. It could be the Walls crate. There's the bamboo pit viper and the monosilate cobra. Uh, so, I mean, it's one of those. Yeah,
1: my my money would be on one of the crates for sure. Yeah. Because f- we've got, like, I'm, I'm looking at my umbar right now and we have the Burmese crate, which is a category one. What's the scientific name on that, little Mag- bad boy? Magni maculatus. Bungaris magni maculatus.
0: Okay. Did you know there's one called Bungaris lividus? <laughs> it's furious he can't stand it that's a category 2 though lesser black crate that's one of the ones from
1: yeah maybe maybe one of the the, the cobras
0: perhaps I feel like there's got to be an antivenom for Kalthia though no?
1: Calthia I would I think definitely because Thailand has Kalthia and yeah. there's but that doesn't necessarily mean that that treatment's available in Myanmar true I don't know whether they, they did it as like, okay, this species not counted because it's got treatment, or this species is only not counted
0: if it's in a particular
1: region, which also has that treatment available.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I don't know.
1: But I w- my money would be on something like the Burmese crate, the many-banded crate. I don't think it will be the white-lipped pit viper or the bamboo viper. No. Because I think they're too widespread. Yeah.
0: Well, and... and uh, um. The albabras are uh, category two anyway.
1: No, uh, not for not in not in Myanmar.
0: Oh really? Oh really? In Bangladesh, it says
1: it says Abelabris is category one. Oh, in Bangladesh they're category two. Okay, so it's unique. That's interesting. So it's country specific categories too. Yeah.
0: Okay. Right on.
1: Mm. Ooh, so many layers of complexity to discover. Yeah. Or there's just a mistake in one of the pages. Maybe. Um, Siamese Russell's viper. I also doubt is the one without treatment yeah. because it's such a big uh, problem I mean that's one of the big five isn't it Russell's Vipers I don't know if the Siamese one specifically is but I understood as Russell's Vipers in general was uh, counted as one of the big big targets so my other money would be on the Mandalay spitting cobra
0: okay that doesn't occur in Bangladesh but
1: um hmm interesting so maybe that's Maybe there's one of the crates in Bangladesh mm. that isn't in Myanmar. It's the other one for Bangladesh. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, there's um, there are some some countries which have a disproportionate amount of snakes which have uh, no treatment options. Um, so one other thing they looked at was travel time. So distance to a travel centre, to an urban centre where they would likely find a good hospital, they being victims of snake bite. Um, Sudan, Algeria, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, Colombia and Peru Uh, in these countries the time taken to travel to a city from rural areas can actually worsen mortality outcomes by more than 25% if you uh, accept the 1% rise in risk that I mentioned earlier from the Habib in Abu Bakr every hour is 1% risk it could be 25 hours
1: so again that might change with snake it might change with other sort of mitigative uh, treatments that are done along the way and things like that I would presume in different places yeah um Yeah, you know, I I appreciate what they've done. There is is taking this one paper and extrapolate it out because that's the best data they have. But there is some more room for nuance there with different snakes in different locations. Yeah,
0: it certainly bangs though as a statement. Yeah. 25% increased risk of death simply because you're far away.
1: Well, and that that is legitimately the best estimate if you were predicting uh, the chances of somebody being bitten. That's, you know, these are the numbers you would use.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of unknowns in, like you say there. There's a lot of nuance and potential unknowns, um, yeah, about how things affect your outcome from a snake bite, people's livelihoods, people's willingness to seek effective treatment, and um, yeah, the actual likelihood of being envenomated by a particular snake.
1: Yeah, because a lot go a lot a lot goes into that, doesn't it? It's not just. How venomous the snake is—it's how likely that snake is to bite someone. Whether they're in uh, sort of behavioural things that lead them more likely to bite, so defensive behaviours, whatever, to mitigate the need to bite. Um, loads of things, loads of little snake nuance, snake nuances that uh, we simply don't know on a big enough or grand enough scale to be able to incorporate into something that's looking for hotspots quite broadly
0: yeah yeah um so yeah i think what this paper does really well is it serves to kind of show exactly where and why healthcare provision needs to be improved across the Mm. world to reduce the impacts of snakebite and um yeah it does also highlight the areas in which more research needs to be done to discover the burden snakebite is having rather than just using estimates scaled up from reporting figures that we do have because as we mentioned earlier on reporting figures for snake bite are quite weak so um this is kind of an independent approach which doesn't necessarily rely on the, the kind of weak data that other studies have from hospitals and such they kind of take a different approach um based solely around ecological and geographic factors
1: yeah And it's got a pretty, just straight to the point, these are the areas that need to be prioritised. Yeah. These are the areas most vulnerable. And I think it makes a very convincing point um, because it is taking into account both these things. So you've got potential and you have lack of solutions to deal with that potential. Yeah.
0: And so I think in total they kind of identify about 92 million people which live in the most vulnerable geographic areas um, and they include sub-Saharan countries, Indonesia, and um, other bits of Southeast Asia, like Borneo. So those are kind of like the main, that's the main headline finding, isn't it? That Those are the places that need to be targeted first. Um, mm. And like you said, fight the fire that's, inf- well, like we said, fight the fire that's kind of most pressing. Um, so yeah, I think hopefully that gives people a little bit of an idea about why snake bite is so important. Perhaps, you know, I think it's very easy not to realise because um, these aren't necessarily issues which affect people whose voices are widely heard. So I think that is kind of the crux of why it's ended up as a neglected tropical disease, and um, that's what's going on. And um, hopefully that's given people an idea of what's happening on a global scale. And now I think it's high time we turned our focus towards a smaller place with
1: local scale. Lo- yeah.
0: Local scale. <laughs> I feel like I'm having a stroke when I try and say that sentence. <laughs> mm.
1: Just need to just need to wind yourself up again. Okay. Just a uh, no drink. Yeah. Like clockwork toy.
0: So that is global scale. Now it's time to laser focus in on one particular region and look at how Snake ecology is influencing human snake conflict in Hong Kong. Hmm.
1: So this is a very geographic way of thinking about things. It's a whole act local, think global idea. Gosh, or at least that's the way I try and conceptualise these things because I'm I'm a geographer at heart, and that'll you can't unlearn that stuff.
0: Yeah, and also I think that act local. What is it? Be local. Think global. Act local. Think global. Act local. Or vice versa. It also kind of um, serves to temper your expectations. Because really, you're an individual and you can't do anything. Nothing impactful will ever come of your actions. So just behave on a local scale. (laughs) And hopefully if enough people do it, something might change bigger.
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I always feel like it's a little bit empowering. Yeah. Because it's okay you've got this global issue you can see it's a global issue but you can actually impact it by doing local stuff and and not to be disheartened because you can't solve the entire problem in one go regardless of what that problem is
0: preach brother so yeah let's introduce to paper two
1: Yeah, so we have you, Bonebreak, and Gibson. It's a 2019 paper published in Herpetological Conservation and Biology. Human-snake conflict patterns in a dense urban forest mosaic landscape. As you said, okay, we're going smaller scale. We're just looking at, where is it, Hong Kong this time. And the reason we're focusing on on human-snake conflict, human-snake conflict is the setup, the stage that, Produces these snake bites. If there was no human snake conflict, snake bite, it wouldn't be a thing, right? These two s- different terms are pretty much massively overlapping, if not entirely overlapping. Yeah. Um, I suppose you could get snake bite in like a captive environment that would be less human snake conflict and more just person got bit by captive snake, but that's not really what we're talking about.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: So I I would say these are unbelievably linked
0: inextricably yeah Yeah. Uh, so yeah a human snake conflict is any encounter between a human and a snake with, between a human and a snake which ends with one or both being stressed injured, relocated or dying I don't think many humans end up being relocated after an encounter with a snake <laughs> you know it's pretty much a one way one way traffic on the relocation one but yeah that's that's what we're talking about here
1: yeah that's just not something people would do for snakes. I suppose maybe you could sort of be like, you're walking along a path and you see a snake. And, I can't get around this snake. It's too big. It's in the path. Oh, what am I going to do? I better relocate myself.
0: Yeah. But I would say it's like a... It's a temporary relocation. You're not going to up sticks and move your entire life to the, to a neighboring town.
1: That's true. But some snake relocations yeah. are only temporarily temporary as well.
0: True. True.
1: They're just less um voluntary Mm,
0: yeah but this obviously we're in hong kong Um, hong kong is a relevant place for a study like this to occur because asia is the continent in which most urban development and infrastructure increase is occurring and this paper kind of examines how land use types season and weather variables affect the likelihood of human snake conflict occurring there's only been one previous study examining human snake conflict in an ecological context it was about Um I did read it. It was like pretty hard going. And it was a very local study just taking place on an army base. So there was really only so much hmm. they could um, kind of elucidate. What about that?
1: There's that Akani paper from um, 2002, I believe it is. Looking at the instances. Let me just bring it up. Let me bring it up. I'm sure I can find it very swiftly bring it up uh, so we have yeah an Akane 2002 paper ecological patterns of anthropogenic mortality of suburban snakes in an African tropical region um, and I believe this is the one yeah that's showing peaks of snake mortality at certain times of the year um, and they are human caused mortalities the majority of the time I believe
0: Oh, so there you go, there's another one. And that one's in Africa? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, it's uh, Nigeria. Southern Nigeria, I think.
0: Okay, cool. So there you go, there's more than one. Uh, they said in the paper there was one, but there was two. There may even be three, who knows?
1: There's there's likely to be three, but... Uh, I don't know, I feel like sometimes papers looking at this sort of stuff on a very local scale are actually very hard to find, because they tend to be in smaller journals this was published in the israel journal of uh, zoology the one i'm talking
0: about okay yeah
1: um so they they don't get the same press as some of these big grand like snake bite on a global scale papers so that's why they can be a little bit harder to find
0: Hmm. yeah okay yeah hong kong The perfect place to study this because it contains a very wide variety of habitats. There's a nice mosaic. It's not all just one thing. Hong Kong, pre-World War II. Cast your mind back, Ben. It's foresty. It's beautiful. Wow. I can see it now. The whole island is lush with trees. What happened? Cleared extensively during World War II. I'm not sure why. I tried to find out. I did some googling. I couldn't work it out. Maybe they were fortifying the island. It was an allied base. It was defending from incursion from other Asian nations. I'm not sure why they ended up being no trees. Maybe they needed the timber for stuff. I don't know. But anyway, the total land area of 1,100 kilometres squared, it now consists of a mixture of dense urban areas, small villages, farmlands, wetlands, secondary forests, and successional habitats, and also shrublands and grasses that are now 20 to 30 years post clearance. So you've kind of got a wide variety of environments, some of which probably weren't around before but i'm sure species can come in and make themselves at home there's 86 reptile species do you know how many of those are snakes yes 53 oh i've got 55 oh my we'll call it 54 what we'll call it 54 no, I shan't
1: accept this because I'm looking at it in the paper. Well, we'll call it 54. Hong Kong contains an impressive reptile diversity given its small area. At least 86 species of reptiles, <laughs> yeah. including 53 snake species. Well, call Carson it. Et al., we'll call it
0: 54. I'll... We'll call it 54. <laughs> um, good records. That'll do. There's good records of snake conflict in Hong Kong. And the reason for that. Is because if you call the police in Hong Kong and say, hello, I've seen a snake, they will come there and they will arrest the snake for you. They they will.
1: Yeah. They'll take that snake. They've got little handcuffs that they put on the snake. The handcuffs
0: fall off. They are oh, again, again with this. Best money that the Hong Kong police force has ever spent, those snake handcuffs. <laughs>
1: It's just a sock.
0: <laughs> it's yeah. a chainmail sock. <laughs> um, obviously, they don't come and arrest a snake, but in actual fact, what will happen is a snake catcher will come to your house and move it to, air quotes, suitable habitat nearby. See episode 33 of the podcast for more information. I don't want to go into it here. But basically, when the police are called. Although
1: we can bring up the. What we can do is bring up that Devon Song et al. 2016 paper, because that was also done in Hong Kong. Yeah. using similar data, if not the same snakes that they're talking about here. So that's quite neat, the overlap between the actual translocation study and the stuff we're talking about today.
0: Absolutely 100% relevant. Um, white-lit pit vipers going on holiday against their will and generally not enjoying themselves. Wasn't the all-inclusive package deal they'd hoped for. Um, no. But yeah, so the fact that these snake catchers come is great because it means that they've got records of human-snake conflicts. So kudos to the Hong Kong police force, both for offering that as a service... ...trying to avoid snakes being smashed up by people... ...and also for keeping good records, which Mm. allowed this cool paper to take place at all. And so they were looking at monthly human-snake conflict incidents... ...so that is snake calls, between 2002 to 2016 that was 9,121 reported incidents of 33 different species of snake. I mean, that's quite a data set to have, to work on.
1: It's impressive.
0: It really is. Especially for
1: something like this, which is, you know, this sort of data is collected very rarely, I feel. Like, there are people doing this sort of data collection, but um, it takes a hell of a lot of effort to get people to do it. I mean, you know, these are snake rescue people, these are police, you know, they've got jobs to do, they're not data collecting field assistance sort of stuff. They got other other work, so then to add this on top. It's impressive that it's worked so effectively. Yeah. And yeah, I'm I'm certainly
0: impressed. Yeah. And um well, what they did, they looked at whether or not there was a kind of seasonal impact on when they were getting phone calls. And as it turns out, late spring was kind of time where the calls were increasing, and then they were really high in autumn and um, minimal during the winter months. So late spring, yeah, high in autumn. Winters
1: get pretty pretty chilly in uh, in Hong Kong, so I'm guessing a lot of these snakes just sort of chill out and stay hidden for that period. Yeah, I think that's pretty pretty reasonable assumption
0: to make. Yeah, late spring and highest in autumn. So they're kind of the times where the snakes are active. Late spring, they'll be like mating and autumn they'll be going around trying to feed prior to winter so i mean that makes really mm. good ecological sense and yeah there were more snakes in people's houses at those times i guess it's also a possibility that towards the end of autumn snakes are looking for somewhere to hibernate and um, houses can represent that's potential yeah houses can definitely represent a uh, a tempting place to go i don't know about you but when it's cold outside i go inside
1: yeah usually into a house
0: mm.
1: sometimes i crawl under a log but it's, it's it's rare. It
0: depends, you know. If my usual subterranean refuge is taken, I'll go in a house.
1: Yeah, if there's a fat off toad just blocking the entrance. Yeah. I mean, you're not
0: gonna you're not gonna mess with those guys. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, they they own all the real estate. They do, uh, they do, and they do that thing where they whoop, swell up, stand on their yeah. legs. <sighs> Look at going standing on their
1: legs. I'm not doing that.
0: What are they like? Ah <laughs> oh, yes. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Top five most frequent species oh, encountered yeah. in people's houses. What are they? In descending order... Tyus mucosa. Tyus mucosa, a.k.a. boring brown guy. The common rat snake. Common. Yeah. Common as muck. Yeah. Often mistaken for king copras in your part of the world, I believe.
1: Can be. Yeah. By novices. Yep, there's some definite overlap. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> uh,
0: Steady. I'm joking. Um... Yeah, no, but I mean they do. They're big and brown, aren't they? So they, you can see why people think they're king cobras.
1: Well, and a bit of striping too. Yeah,
0: yeah. So that's like close to two thousand five hundred of those coming out of people's houses. Uh, Chinese cobra, Naya atra, one thousand six hundred of those. Um, next up, and that's actually
1: this is this is a, the first one on the list. So Typhus mucosa is probably not a big deal in terms of human damage. Maybe they'd eat your pet if you got unlucky and had a small pet, but uh, they're not going to hurt people, really. Yeah. It has to be a very small pet.
0: Like a Um, parrot or a mouse?
1: I was thinking a little chihuahua or something like that.
0: Mate, I would be staggered if a tyros mucosa could eat a chihuahua. Yeah,
1: chihuahuas are pretty feisty too.
0: I'm not saying it's impossible. But I'm saying it's unlikely. I'm saying I would be... It's, I'm, it's pretty unlikely. I would wager a lot of money, actually. I would put a chihuahua and a tyus in a pit together for an extended period with impunity.
1: And you'd expect the chihuahua to walk away just fine. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. I think if you had a pet rat or a pet hamster... Yeah, definitely. Maybe there's some scope for human-snake I, conflict there. Yeah.
0: Or perhaps the H and HSC stands for hamster-snake conflict.
1: Oh, my days. <laughs> Nobody's ready for that. <laughs> Such a crap. Certainly not the hamsters.
0: <laughs> not, yeah, that was, a, that, that was a low level joke. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> the, the third one is the bamboo pit viper, Trimerosaurus albalebrus, or to call it its proper name, in my opinion, Cryptellotrops albalebrus.
1: That's weird. Yeah,
0: bamboo pit viper. I thought that was a totally different thing,
1: the bamboo pit viper. Yeah, I don't know. Some people oh, call it. snakes and their common name yeah. is so.
0: Muddled. The bamboo palm pit viper, some people call it as well. I mean, okay. I have to tell you, mate, I spent a lot of time looking in different places for those and I never once saw it in bamboo. I saw them all around bamboo but never in bamboo. So, oh, my personal opinion you go. bamboo pit viper, not such a good name for them, but uh, you know, what do I know? Maybe there's some areas of their range where they inhabit bamboo forests. They love it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Or maybe just the first one was found in bamboo. Could
0: well be. Yeah, it was actually lost. <laughs> Next up, redneck keelback, Rabdophis subminiatus, subject of quite a bit of discussion this uh, this episode. Probably should mention, yep. it's the snake which is venomous and poisonous. <laughs> so one of one of several, yeah. To be fair, topic of many memes. Yeah. And then finally, the copperhead racer, Cylindrasis radiatus, aka what is it? Some kind of rat snake? People call that.
1: Radiating rat snake rat is what snake. I would call it. Yeah,
0: same here. Beautiful. That is a beautiful snake.
1: Very... And full of full of attitude and they're just... Oh, they're wonderful wonderful snakes. Yeah, yeah. Really great looking.
0: Yeah, they're one of the best snakes I would say. Certainly certainly I would, I would go as far as to say the coolest colibrid in... Oh, up there. Southeast Asia. Up there, yeah. yeah. Very impressive. Um,
1: so so we've got, what have we got? We've got three species that are not going to be on WHO's Category 1 or 2 list. And then we have two that most certainly are going to be on. And as a percentage, both the Cobra and the Viper, it's around 30%, 31% of these human-snake conflict incidents. So, I mean, that's a lot of incidents where someone could potentially be envenomated by something that's going to cause pretty nasty harm.
0: mm yeah yeah
1: so the st- the stage is set for damaging human snake conflict
0: indeed it is um, the other thing which is quite obvious was that it seems to be that rodent eaters are the ones most commonly found around people. Um, the mm. same is true in India where Burmese pythons, cobras, and rat snakes abound, and actually Burmese pythons, I think were number six on this list, so um yeah, yeah, snakes which eat rodents seem to be more popularly found near people, which makes sense because people attract rodents because we eat the same thing. Well, people people's trash. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think rodents are like particularly fond of people as such. No. They also did acknowledge there were some limitations of their study. So small snakes were like the underreported because you're not going to call the police if you find a brahmini blind snake in your flower garden. Oh.
1: Yeah. Partly because it's probably helping the flower garden.
0: Yeah, I would imagine maybe. Probably.
1: I can't can't imagine a little blind snake causing damage to your flowers.
0: No. And also, it it just looks like a worm. You're not going to be frightened of it. Whereas if you've got a Burmese python in your kitchen, you're not going to think twice. You're going to get on the blower. You're going to be like, there's a gigantic Mm. python in my kitchen. Can you come and have a look at it? Sort it out. Maybe relocate this little customer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, they also said they could have done with finer resolution, resolution spatial data because in their reporting they don't keep GPS coordinates or addresses, they just say which region they rescued the snake from what region, what sort of small area.
1: Yeah we didn't we didn't say how that, we didn't actually get into the, the spatial aspect of this yet have we um, so the, the, done the temporal stuff of winter being a more peaceful time and the spring and the autumn being sort of snake party time yes. um, but in terms of uh, what's the right word habitats I suppose mm. they were finding that the scrubland or, or regions that had more scrubland and sort of intermediate habitats were the ones who were having the greatest human snake conflict because it seemed like the very forested regions okay you may have a lot of snakes but the people aren't going into the forest very much there's not much contact between the two areas where you've got very urban areas the same but reversed much fewer snakes but people are around a lot more it was really these contact zones where there was um sort of suburban and scrubland really seem to be the hotbeds for human snake conflict makes perfect sense these are these areas of of intersection where snakes are probably still quite abundant, abundant and people are still you know, making good use, well, making full use of the area as well.
0: Yeah. And I think actually sometimes you do end up with um, disturbed areas like that, disturbed habitats. I remember we talked about this with chameleons, but sometimes, I mean, there's not compelling evidence for this. I'm just, I don't know, I'm spitballing here, basically. But sometimes where there's those disturbed environments, you can get quite high densities of snakes or other animals of a limited sort of species pool. So it might be that actually these like open areas are quite good for particular species and that increases the chance certainly i think like yeah i think with something like green pit vipers it wouldn't surprise me if they were just actually crushing it in these disturbed areas which kind of um were similar to edge habitats
1: yeah they were saying that actually trimersos alba was is one of two species that weren't negatively correlated with forest yeah so well the inverse they did urban so they were um they weren't negatively correlated with a percentage of urban cover, so it was them and Tyus Major. I think it is. They call yes, Tyus Cy- Cyclo. Cy- what even? I my head around this.
0: Yeah, cyclophops Major. Cyclophops Major sounds way cooler than Tyus Major. I would much rather my name it- was associated with the uh, Cyclophops.
1: Yeah. Did you Did you find the full names spelled out somewhere in the paper or? Did
0: you just know it was... Mm, mm, mm. I didn't know it. I just thought... Tyus Major. I just saw that it had the word Major in it, and I was like, cool. (laughs) And then you (laughs) looked it up. Yeah, and have you seen how green that snake is? It's so green. It's also the greater green snake. So whichever the other green snake is, Major's better. Well, that's probably
1: what the Major means in it. Oh, yeah, it's very green. No, I think the Major's just
0: Tom Major. No, it's not. But yeah, you're right. Major is big. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it'd be fool of me to ignore the fact that it does actually mean something. Um, and yeah, like you say, green pit vipers are chill about hanging around in gardens and presumably greater green snakes are the same. When I say green pit vipers, I mean white pit vipers, a.k.a. the bamboo palm pit viper explicitly. Um, yeah. But yeah, the only other snake that were not in... So the other thing we should mention is that there was a peak temperature for snake sightings basically as it got warmer you're more likely to see a snake there were much more human snake conflicts where the temperature was at a temperature which is suitable for snake activity as you'd expect the only exception to that Mm. were fossorial snakes so snakes which are living underground don't really care what temperature is the
1: coward snakes yeah
0: i think they probably were mostly encountered by people digging holes and stuff
1: yeah yeah, and I feel like a lot of fossorial snakes aren't particularly venomous. I feel like you're. I've been mean, going back to that paper we uh, discussed, what two episodes ago, with the association of venom strength and different levels, and they found that arboreal snakes were less venomous than terrestrial ones, right? As a generalization. Yeah. Because it was count- It was counter to their hypothesis. But with. with them saying that arboreal snakes needed to subdue prey quickly because there was lots of escape routes. And I remember it being the opposite of that. So the implication being terrestrial ones being more venomous. I just wonder if fossorial sort of operates as a sort of reverse arborealness.
0: Well, and they get super dangerous underground.
1: No, no, they get less dangerous underground again.
0: Yeah, I think you're probably right.
1: Because of like prey abundance and not having to work as hard.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing which had a slightly, actually had a slightly negative um, influence on human-snake conflict occurrence was um, humidity and rainfall. So if it was wetter, slightly less snaky stuff going on.
1: Hmm. What else was it? Oh, I think it, they have, They bring up a good point that it, this isn't just a, um, you know, humans threatened by snakes situation. This is also snakes threatened by humans. So when you're solving this problem, you've got to, you know, think about it from both angles. And they bring up that actually three species were threatened, so I think vulnerable or worse by IUCN standards. So King Cobra, Burmese Pythons and the uh, Naja Atra all threatened to some extent. So identifying this pattern of conflict can help potentially help mitigate the snake uh, mortalities as well as any sort of Human damage or mortalities.
0: Cool. That's good. Uh, it should have stuff yeah, like that, but, you know, being as it's in a journal called Herpetological Conservation Biology.
1: Yeah, it's just nice to have have this sort of from both perspectives yeah. from snake perspective and human perspective.
0: No, absolutely. Yeah. And um, all of the snakes are precious.
1: Mm. Even the flowerpot snakes.
0: Especially. I would love to see one of those. I would lose my mind. I have seen one, I've seen a thread snake in Kenya. Which actually might even be... I saw Peter's Thread Snake. I can't remember the scientific name. But there's actually some suggestion it might be the smallest snake in the world. Um, hmm. But I don't know. You know, all the snakes are saying they're the smallest snake. Some of them aren't. Um, but it was mad. It literally just... It was like a small worm that was jet black. Uh, but then if you looked closely, you could just see the like interstitial skin was kind of white. Um, yeah. And that's how you could tell it was a snake. And then it had this tiny little tongue that was poking out. It was um, amazing. Amazing.
1: Hilarious little guys. Yeah,
0: pointless little thing. Um, So that's pretty much, would you say it? I think the conclusion to the paper was this. They found that human-snake conflict incidents in Hong Kong were correlated with season, as we've said, weather and habitat type, uh, which suggests that the thermal, biology and ecological preferences of snakes have an impact. And like you said, disturbed or successional habitats like the shrubland where there was forest and it's been allowed to regrow a bit, contained the most human snake conflict instances. Um, Yeah, forests not as bad as you'd think, despite having lots of snakes because no one goes there. But yeah, certainly it's good. Now there's an idea of where they need to kind of target efforts to reduce human snake conflict. Perhaps people who are frequently inhabiting shrubby areas need to be targeted for education programs so they can learn what not to do, and what safety precautions to take if they have to be in these environments. It's definitely a a paper which will have functional relevance and can be built upon by people in Hong Kong.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly it. It's a good example of information for Hong Kong, but it's also the sort of information that needs to be rolled out and identified in these areas, these hotspots that the other paper picks out. So you can see how, okay, you've got a broad-scale paper, an example of a small scale paper and how those two could fit together because you have identified covariates here on a potentially on a species specific level on a local level so okay these sorts of habitats these sort of uh, environmental factors are driving human snake conflict here you can probably extrapolate that off over the entire snakes range perhaps or something like that because we have big uh, broad scale data when it comes to habitat types and stuff like that and start calibrating uh, the broad scale studies like what we discussed first and combine or start trying to combine local stuff that calibrates it to big, broad scale stuff that deals with all the species and sort of more general drivers of snake bite risk. Mm. And I, I really like these two treated as a pair, even though they're completely. Um, completely separate in a lot of ways, because you can see the sort of next move to unify them and make both of them stronger in some in some regard.
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, I think uh, one is well, yeah, I think it's cool because one is sort of medical professionals taking a snake bite ecological approach and going kind of more out of their comfort zone. And then the other one is some herpetological researchers making a big effort to go slightly out of their comfort zone and talk about why human-snake conflict might be influenced Mm. by ecology. They're looking at a much more human element than they perhaps ordinarily would, which is cool.
1: Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, that's how any of these issues is going to be solved. It has to have both elements, or as the first paper said, that nexus of ecological contexts and public health weaknesses. 100%.
0: Human, ecology.
1: Yeah, you got to study both.
0: Mm-hmm. Right on. So I think that ties us up for the venom element of the episode. Hope f- the snake bite stuff, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, frees us up to move on to our uh, anticipated segment of the week, of the bi-week. <laughs> So this paper is by Branch Bayliss, Bittencourt Silver, Conrady, Engelbrecht Loder, Menegon, Nunvonamakitsko, and Tolly, 2019, a new species of tree snake from Sky Island forests in northern Mozambique, with notes on other members of the Sadeboa Werneri group. So, cool-sounding paper. In taxa. In taxa, yes. Cool, cool-sounding paper with some heavy-hitting authors, um... Yeah, we're travelling to Mozambique.
1: Right next to Madagascar, over the sea. Yeah,
0: so okay, so it borders South Africa and Tanzania, takes up that Mm. southeasterly portion. That coastal bit, right? Yeah, nice. Um, Yeah, so uh, provinces in northern Mozambique have been quite understudied in recent decades because there was a 15-year civil war that ended in 1992. Um, That was like savage and bloody and so that is not conducive environment to studying biodiversity so by and large mozambican biodiversity is somewhat understudied but mozambique is actually home to a number of isolated what they call montane inselbergs what we call sky islands uh, which we've talked about numerous times on the podcast and so there's they do come up they do because they're so cool and uh, they're extremely cool they're hard to
1: study and they're perfect for, for speciation to occur because they, they do become isolated
0: yeah and they're also hard to destroy because they're slightly difficult to reach in inhospitable places mm, so that they too. tend to yeah that too yeah they do tend to be preserved just simply by nature of it being a pain for humans to destroy them um, yeah so yeah these sky islands in Mozambique northern Mozambique they're no exception to the rule they have cool animals As you said, because they're relics of much wider expanses of forest that have had millions of years of relative isolation. climate change, there's no more forest between the Sky Islands. The Sky Islands themselves become hotbeds of cool endemism. And during a survey of Mount Mabu, which is one of these Sky Islands, in 2008, the team spotted a bunch of cool tree snakes of an unidentified species, which they describe in this paper.
1: Yeah. So, what do we have? What is our snake called? It is the montane forest tree snake, aka Dipsaraboa montisilva.
0: Hmm. Top quality name. Top quality name. Yeah, I like this one. Name. I mean, I can say it, which helps. Yeah. No, you did really well. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> the name is derived from the Latin words montem which means mountain, and silver, which means forest. So literally, mountain, forest, snake, um, which references the isolated mountain forest habitat we just discussed, where it's found on Mount Mabu in Zambezia province, Mozambique. Um, yeah, they collected a few samples from this Mount Mabu. They were all either active on the forest floor or in low branches. Uh, they also collected one from a different mountain, Mount ribawe and that specimen was collected in low branches about one and a half meters off the ground off a small tree in the understory so this is a snake that inhabits evergreen montane forest uh, between 919 and 1644 meters above sea level as far as we know that's pretty high up there
1: isn't it it is that's pretty impressive yeah and that is proper montane
0: and the ones they found were kind of mooching around near the floor or in low branches but they say that that might not represent their actual ecology because I mean you know something like a boiga cyanea the green cat snakes where you are you only ever see them when they're crossing the road or bowling around on the floor but you know right precisely when they're within human reaching distance exactly
1: And they're so well camouflaged when they're up high
0: there's just no way yeah
1: so very tough
0: yeah and I mean the counter shading on these snakes the orange underneath and the red on top and um, they could well be in the high high elevations Um, sorry high in the branches um, yeah, so I've just kind of alluded there a bit of a spoiler about what they look like. They're pretty damn striking really, aren't they
1: they're yeah for for what you could describe as a brown snake, they're very good looking, so we've got this very rich, ready orange running along the uh sort of lower side all the way down and onto the chin, and eventually they've got this sort of darker, richer brown. Juveniles being paler and more universally brown.
0: Did you say ventrally they've got richer brown or dorsally?
1: I meant dorsally, but I said, I said ventrally. Yeah.
0: That's cool. Well, you've corrected <laughs> Brown yourself, on man. top, orange on the bottom. Yeah, top brown, orange underneath. But the really nice, bright yeah. orange, like a beautiful orange colour. Um, and it's just the ventral scales, which are orange. It doesn't really extend anywhere up. And then they've also got a kind of orange bottom half of their face. Mm. And the juvenile, there's a juvenile female in one of the photos and she's actually brown. So whether or not the adults become orange where the juveniles are brown or whether it's the males that are orange, I would have thought it's probably males and females. In juveniles, the whole body is uniform, light orange, brown with a pale eventual surface. And then mm. they get orange as they get older.
1: And they're about... Largest female was 597 SVL. Largest male was 825 SVL. Okay. Which, so, what are you looking at? Yeah, 0. 0.6 of a metre to almost a metre. Well, with tail included, just over a metre. Okay, so they're not small, they're not big. They're a good-sized arboreal colubrid snake. They are colubrids, right?
0: Yes, they are. They are... Not
1: Lamprophidae or something strange. No,
0: they're um They're... African colubrids. Um, they call them boigine because they look a bit like boigia boigine they look a bit like boigia but that's just a descriptor boigish yeah they're boigish um <laughs> But boigish uh, but yeah they're african colibris which are a bit mysterious um so yeah nice to have something about african colibris resolved habitat photos look nice don't they i could spend a bit of time in that sky island yeah
1: And it wouldn't be too hot, right? Being up that high. No, it would be. I would presume it'd be a
0: temperature to which we were quite accustomed. I would think. Um, Yeah. mm, Yeah. Looks lovely. I love when they do the sort of. There's a habitat shot, right? And they've got the like, long shutter speed, to, make the water look like it's nice and blurry. That's a nice touch (laughs) for a scientific paper, like that. Hmm. Um, What else is there to say about these new snakes? Yeah, they said that um, there's 10 species in the genus Dipsadoboa there. I think there's 10 species in the genus Dipsadoboa. Their phylogeny only has information from 7 of the 10 because there wasn't a huge amount of genetic material available, which does speak to the fact that these colibrids are not hugely well understood. Nevertheless, from mm. the evidence they t- t- checked, definitely this is a new species. So, uh yeah. Dipsadoboa Montesilva Very nice. Mm. Very very nice. Yeah, inhabiting closed canopy evergreen montane forest, with small gaps caused by tree falls and stream gullies.
1: Yeah, lovely peaceful place for a lovely peaceful snake. Yeah, which is very unlikely to be involved in any sort of human snake conflict.
0: Almost at the moment. But almost and um, almost impossible. Um, yeah, cool. Well, that's it. That's it, I reckon. Any other business?
1: Not that I can think of.
0: No, I don't have anything much to say. Um, yeah, I'm going to put a link to a conversation article about anti-venoms in Africa costing people's lives when the uh, wrong anti being administered for Ekis, sore-scale vipers. So I'll put that in the show notes. Um, yeah, but aside from that... Wow! Okay. So um, we were talking about auto hemorrhagic behavior.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's bleeding bleeding lizards, bleeding snakes from the yeah. eyes and stuff as a defensive mechanism to discourage being eaten.
0: Yeah. So, wow. So, according, yeah, apparently we had an email off Yannick and, um, yeah, apparently auto hemorrhagic behavior. So snakes squirting blood from their faces has been recorded in Natrix. Natrix, or like species in Natrix, so some kind of grass snakes, and apparently in Escalapian snakes at least once. Ooh. Thanatosis and auto hemorrhaging in the Escalapian snake. Wow. Okay. Well, I need to read that paper. That's exciting. Wow. Okay. Neat. That's, yeah, completely passed me by. Amazing. Um,
1: but you've not had any of your Escalapian squirt blood at you?
0: No, never. No. Nothing. No blood. I've seen no blood, <laughs> except for ones that have been run over. <laughs> that's probably over. a good thing. Yeah, well, I've seen a couple that Although... have had injuries and they've had blood, but, um, yeah. Not coming out of their eyes. No, and certainly not, yeah, definitely not deliberate. Um, death feigning. Thanatosis is death feigning. So this paper is about them feigning death and reflex bleeding. I've never seen either of these things.
1: Hmm. Well, that's probably a good thing. You're probably not stressing them out enough to... to you know go for such drastic measures wow okay or maybe your little
0: subspecies has just forgotten those scales so it's maybe it's, so this occurred in Romanian snakes and yeah it squared blood out of its lips and nostrils which lasted for two or three minutes minimal blood flow the animal seemed fine and then after that it went limp and feigned death and then once it was left alone it started to go again and then when they picked it up again it death feigned again Okay, wow. Hmm. Wow, thank you very much for sharing that with me, Yannick. That's fascinating. Yeah, neat. Yeah, I've definitely never seen... No, I've definitely never seen any blood on the face of a snake, or they've never... No, none of them have ever feigned death either, because I've only ever had one snake.
1: that's that's what you reckon. You scooped up one from the road, it was actually feigning death. It's gone now.
0: Joke's on it, because I put it in the freezer. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. uh, no. That 100% would not happen, so... Um. Yeah. Wow. Uh. I've actually only had one snake feign death on me. I think I've talked about it on the podcast before, but that was a radiated rat Radiatus. snake. Radiatus. Yeah. Yeah. As you mentioned earlier, crazy feeling. Really does. You really drop your guard, and I was just like, "Oh no, it's dead!" And then it was gone, but it wasn't quite gone. But it would have been gone. You can really see how it works. <laughs> mm. yeah. yeah. Just
1: prompting that little bit of bit of doubt.
0: Mm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so thanks for getting in touch with us about that, Yannick. And uh, yeah, that was a Patreon episode for Sammy Assad. Hope you enjoyed it, Sammy. Um, we will be back next time.
1: I no, I think that's pretty much it. Oh, I, I can I can mention that I'll be at the Venomous Snakes as flagship species symposium again. Um, but other than that, that's that's all I really got.
0: Yeah, go and say hi to Ben and tell him how great his podcast is if you see him at the uh, symposium. <laughs> <laughs> uh, i also you know we've been saying at the end of some of these episodes if you like us leave us a review i hear it on loads of podcasts well i checked the u.s version of apple's uh, podcast and quite a lot of people have left us reviews so thank you very much indeed
1: yeah big thank you for that even even with my disparaging comments
0: <laughs> what disparaging comments
1: well, I don't know what help it actually does, but the, the oh. reviews themselves are really nice, and I'm grateful for them. Yeah, they were
0: so yeah. They warmed our they warmed our hearts when we read them through. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. yeah. Really nice. Um, cool. So if you uh, want to get in touch with us, you can herphighlights at gmail.com or you can get us on Facebook or Twitter. Um, yeah, I think all that remains to be said is thanks for listening.
1: Yeah, thank you for listening.